0: You are listening to a Wavelroom Room podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go for your podcasts. But if that's not enough for you, head to wavelroom.com where you can read our articles. You can follow us on social media, where you can come and join us at one of our live events. In this podcast, we talk with Guy Plopsky. Guy is a political and military analyst based in Israel with a focus on air power, Russian military affairs, and the Asia Pacific. Guy wrote an article for the Wavel Room recently, jointly with Roger McDermott, who is a visiting research fellow at King's College London's War Studies department. In this podcast, we talk to Guy about his recent article on Moscow's perspectives on stealth technologies, and find out more about the reason why Russia downplays the West's developments in stealth, struggles to deliver its own high-precision stealth technologies, and his perspectives on the decision from Turkey as a NATO member and purchaser of the F-35 to also choose to purchase Russian export variant S-400 air defence systems. Enjoy. Uh, so, Guy, if we could, if we could start with um, a little bit more information about you.
1: My background actually is I hold a master's in uh, international affairs and strategic studies from Tamkang University, Taiwan. My primary areas of focus was Russia and the Asia Pacific region, and uh, air power, and just Russian military affairs in general. My parents are originally from the Soviet Union. I immigrated to Israel in the 1970s. So, uh, when I was young, my grandparents spoke uh, in Russian to me, and I thought it would be useful to integrate uh, the Russian language skills with something that interests me in international affairs and in uh, military studies. And so, uh, because there's a lot of information on in in the Russian language, in Russian military literature, etc., that's not available in English. Uh, there's often a lot of interesting things there that you can really use to offer, I guess, more insight or more in-depth analysis of certain matters.
0: Do, do you find some things don't translate well? Some some terms and some concepts.
1: Yeah, I, I think I think there are, you know, often terms and. Uh, concepts are not translated directly and often they are used for a very long time in uh, government uh, in official western government documents as well even though the literal translation isn't necessarily very accurate uh, just to give an example the russians uh, strategic nuclear forces right uh, so in a lot of government documentation, they refer to as SRF, which is uh, Strategic Rocket Forces. But the very literal translation would be Strategic Missile Troops. <laughs> that would be a more accurate translation. But I mean, in this case, it's perhaps less critical because everyone knows what you're referring to. Uh, but still, we see a lot of these discrepancies. And then I guess one of the big problems is when you're reading Western literature on Russian military affairs and you're like wait is this article talking about the same thing as that article because they seem to be talking about the same concept but they're calling it using slightly different terminology.
0: So you and Roger McDermott wrote for us about uh, Russian perspectives on US stealth technology. Um, Yes. Do you think you could sum the article up for us?
1: We basically looked at it in a chronological way. So we start off with the late 1980s uh, when stealth was, well, the F-117A Nighthawk and the B-2A Spirit stealth bomber were being developed. And we sort of wanted to see if already back then The Soviets had anything to say on the matter. And then, of course, the Gulf War, because the Gulf War wasn't actually the first major combat operation where stealth was used. The F-117A Nighthawk was first used during the 1989 Operation Just Cause against Panama, but but the Gulf War was really the first time where it was used on a wide scale and it was used against an adversary that actually fields a functioning integrated air defense system. And then we look at Russian commentary in the early 2000s, because uh, that was around the time where the JUCAS program, the uh, joint U.S. and Navy unmanned aerial combat system program, was underdeveloped. It was later, uh, the Air Force later dropped out of it and it underwent major changes and today it yielded the uh, MQ-25 Stingray. Uh, But back then, you know, it really seemed like they were on the path to fielding some kind of uh, unmanned combat aerial vehicle, which we may see in the future anyway. So uh, likely to see in the future anyway. So it was interesting to see. Uh, Russian commentaries on stealth around the mid-2000s. It was also the time where the Raptor was entering uh, operational service and, you know, the Joint Strike Fighter was becoming more mature. Uh, so we wanted to see that. And, of course, then we go and we look at the most recent now, uh, which is the reason... I mean, I th- the reason which I we chose to write it now is because uh, I, I like to call it that we're sort of in a transitional period when it comes to stealth because it's maturing. It's going from being a niche US Air Force capability to something that's, first of all, becoming more widespread within the US Air Force. Uh, it's going to other services. So the US Navy and the Marine Force are beginning to use it. And um, it's also going to other leading Western Air Forces. So, of course, the Royal Air Force, the Israeli Air Force, uh, the Japan Air Self-Defense Force, Republic of Korea Air Force, etc., etc., many other European Air Forces as well. So, I mean, this proliferation of stealth in the Western world, it's happening thanks to the Joint Strike Fighter program. So it's interesting to see sort of if we wanted to see if there are more Russian commentary on the matter because stealth is really going from being a niche capability to something more mainstream. And also, as we know, the U.S. is working on a new stealth bomber, the B-21. So that's going to qualitatively and quantitatively expand the U.S. stealth bomber force in the future. And also there there are other ongoing unmanned areas. There are also... uh, you know, other projects. Uh, for example, we had the British and we had the French uh, unmanned aerial vehicle programs, and um, which are also, you know, there's research being done in this field. You know, the US also in, in recent years, we, you know, in the media hear about uh, all kinds of covert unmanned aerial vehicle programs like the RQ-170 Sentinel, and other, there's also rumors about the RQ-180. So uh, we're really in this period where stealth is becoming more and more widespread and more and more mainstream, and so we wanted to see what Russia has to say on the matter.
0: And we're in this transitional period, but it doesn't seem that the uh, the Russian view has changed much.
1: Yeah, it actually seems to have become, I would say, even more, at least the tone seems to be seems to be very aggressive very anti stealth uh, seem to project a lot of confidence in their in their own military systems you know a lot of confidence that, that the systems they have can counter it or the upcoming systems will be able to deal with it effectively and as we mentioned in the article we think one of the reasons is that russia itself doesn't have high end uh, S- stealth fighter, or and not necessarily fighter, or just any stealth aircraft in general. They have the Su fifty seven, which uh, which you know it, it it has a low radar cross section relatively to relative to uh, fourth generation fighters, but uh, but it's nowhere near the F thirty five and the F twenty two. So that, and of course, they don't have a stealth bomber. There's n- not much beyond occasional remarks by Russian military officials that their stealth bomber program, the PAK DA program, it's, that it's o- ongoing, and there's promises that by the end of the next decade, you know, we'll see something. But uh, so far, uh, we haven't really seen anything except for statements by Russian officials on the matter. And uh, now they recently unveiled their stealth. Unmanned Combat Aerial Vehicle, the Hotnik the Hunter, uh, which again, is a rather crude design. It's probably not the final design. It's gonna undergo a lot of other modifications, but in general, the Russian Defense Industrial Base doesn't have the high precision manufacturing capabilities that uh, the United States does, that the West does. And so they cannot produce stealth fighter. Desi- stealth aircraft that, you know, are uh, their stealth aircraft designs are more crude let's mm. put it let's put it this way and they understand that and they also understand that it's very expensive so they're not aiming to really match that and they believe that uh, their air defense capabilities especially their ground-based air defense capabilities can effectively counter the stealth challenge at least that's what they publicly say i mean given the fact that they are working on on some stealth aircraft programs and the fact that you know you do see articles which we mentioned in our article that that uh, understand the advantages offered by stealth. You know at least so you, we know that at least in some Russian military circles, this is well understood. So what they're telling the public, in our opinion it has a lot to do with just trying to bolster russia's stance to show that the gap in stealth technology you know it's it's okay so what it doesn't matter we are able to you know we have other means of countering it it's not so serious so i think it's more of an outwardly projection but i think there are many in russia that genuinely don't value stealth as much because they grew up in this environment where they're constantly being told that stealth is just overrated.
0: And their evidence for that is, you, you talk in the article about uh, Vega
1: 3-1? So the shootdown down of uh, F-117A Nighthawk in 1999, that really, I think, gave Russians a big confidence boost that, you know, here the Serbs shot down. An F-117 with outdated Soviet technology. So definitely, our own system. It's modern, much more modern, much more capable systems will be able to do it. And there are a lot of uh, myths and stories surrounding this incident. The for example, first there were like a lot of debates about how the Serbs shot it down. Some were saying they used an infrared guided missile. Some said the MiG-29 shot it down. So, and I mean, these these are all these all turned out to be like false rumors. Uh, in reality, what happened was uh, the Serbs managed to detect it, first of all, on their low-frequency radar at a range of about 30 kilometers, and then they managed to shoot it down at a range of about, I think it was 13 miles, something like that, using you know their SA-3, which is an obsolete Soviet mm. system. Uh, but at a distance of only 13 miles so the f117 it should have never been that close to the uh, sorry not 13 miles i believe it was something like eight miles uh, and uh, they should have never you know been so close to the sam system in the first place to be shut down and the reason it was so close to it had a lot to do with uh you know some serious mistakes made on NATO's part, which uh, the inbound and outbound flight routes assigned to the aircraft were similar. And the Serbs, they had observers outside Aviano Airbase who would like notify when aircraft take off. So the Serbs had a generally good idea where NATO aircraft would be. They also listened to unencrypted uh, NATO radio chatter. So yeah, they had a generally they had a good idea of where NATO aircraft would be. And uh, NATO on its part also, I mean, it uh, didn't coordinate electronic warfare assets effectively with its stealth aircraft fleet. If you synergize electronic warfare with stealth, you really achieve better effect. It's important. So stealth reduces the range. Stealth aircraft can be detected at much shorter ranges, but they can still be detected. So they need to make sure they don't come too close. Mm. Uh, And in this case, it was really too close (laughs) to the SA-3. And it's a one-off incident. And uh, the SAM battalion that shot it down, which was commanded by Zlotandani, the 3rd SAM battalion of the 250th uh, Air Defense Brigade, You know, they were the only ones that actually shot down, manned NATO aircraft during the conflict. They shot down an F-16 later on as well. Uh, So they were the only ones. It was really clever use uh, of tactics on their part. They maintained strict emission control. They constantly relocated the battery. They used decoys, etc. So I think today when NATO planned for that, they need to for plan for combat operations, you know, always assume that the opponent facing you is uh, <laughs> the, someone like the third Yugoslav Sam Battalion Yeah, So it was really a kind of like one off case where, you know, poor use of tactics shouldn't even have been clo- so close to where it was. And the Rus- one other reason that, you know, the Russians often use this incident is because, when you read r- Russian journals, there are a lot of articles in authoritative Russian journals that uh, actually claim that more than one was shot down, uh, and these, uh, but which is false. It's simply not true. They based the report on reports by the Yugoslav government or by some uh, media reports, etc. Some even claim that an F-117 was shut down during Desert Storm, which is also not true. So, in the mind of a lot of Russian analysts, you know, more than one was shut down, uh, which, which again is not true. But if for them, it reinforces this notion that you know stealth is very vulnerable.
0: So, flashing forward, because that was in Vega One Three One, that was in nineteen
1: ninety nine, almost thirty years. Ago. Actually, this year, sorry, almost exactly twenty years ago, as of yes. a few months. ago. Yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> but we had the the more recent strikes in in Syria that uh, the Trump administration. Uh, authorized was that last year yes in uh, april last
1: year yeah
0: and those are yeah. the ones uh, again we had um a lot of russian statements that came out of that that they shot down a lot of the incoming uh, stealth cruise missiles
1: uh, they oh um, the the april 2018 strike it consisted of non-stealthy tomahawk missiles and stealthy storm shadow and justin yeah. yeah missiles uh i mean the tomahawk it's not it has a relatively low radar cross-section, but it's not stealth. Whereas the J- Storm Shadow and especially the JASN, they're highly stealthy missiles. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the Russians come out and make these outlandish bombastic claims, but there's really very little to show for it. You know, what they displayed that they claim to have shot down. Yes, it seems that there were maybe a few missiles that were hit, but that's about it. <laughs> and if you look at photos, you know, the, faci- uh, the of the Barza center, Uh, research and development center, which was hit, it's completely obliterated. And uh, again, yeah, there's no evidence to support their claims. And as we mentioned in the article, the stealth cruise missiles is another something that is, you know, doesn't receive enough attention or appreciation in Russian military literature. And we believe that the reason for that is that if if you look you know if you look at sort of what Russia perceives as a threat, they very frequently discuss high precision weapons, un- developments in unmanned aerial vehicle technology, C4ISR um, weapons, what they call weapons based on on new principles, which is you know I guess it's a fancy way of saying uh, laser based weapons and uh, kinetic energy weapons. They and also hypersonic weapon systems. And uh, when it comes to high precision weapons, they often discuss cruise missiles. But the cruise missile, which they discuss the most, which. Feels Features most prominently is the, the non-stealthy Tomahawk cruise missiles. They, so, you know, there's seldom discussion of uh, other cruise missiles, and I think the reason they focus so much on the Tomahawk, there are two reasons for that. First of all, it's by far the most widespread, widely used cruise mm-hmm. missile. Uh, it's been, you know, since 1991, over 2,000 have been fired in combat, in various combat operations. Uh, whereas if you look at the s- stealth cruise missiles, the British, fr- uh, Franco-British Storm Shadow, you know, it was used on a limited scale first in 2003 and then in 2011 and most recently during last year's strikes. And yeah. then the JASM marked its combat debut during the last year's strike. So you receive much less attention in the media yeah. than uh, the Tomahawk does. And the other reason is the tomahawk's range, which is much greater than uh, that of the storm shadow or of the JASM. Russians they talk a lot about range because Russia is a very big country and uh, they they often estimate the range of the tomahawk to be greater than what official US Navy sources uh, state. From their point of view, the Tomahawk sort of gives the U.S. this capability to reach really deep inside Russia. Mm. Uh, and uh, when it comes, so from you know, and the Tomahawk it's a sea launch cruise missile. So, for example, if it's launched from submarines or warships, a couple of hundred kilometers from Russia's shores, it can reach really deep inside Russia. They, in this context, they sometimes talk about the B-52 with the conventional air launch cruise missile, but uh, that cruise missile, it It's not, it's not highly stealthy and the B2, they don't consider it survivable enough to really approach close to Russia and launch Mm -hmm. it. And the ironic thing about this is you you really don't see any appreciation of the fact that, you know, uh, penetrating stealth bomber can carry the JASM or the JASM or or, uh, JASM or ER, which will be integrated onto the B2. And B-21 as well, and really use that to strike any point within the Russian Federation. There is no, there's no appreciation of that, nothing at all. So <laughs> it's, uh, uh, which is kind of ironic. And also uh, when they talk about tactical aviation using high precision weapons, again, there's, they haven't seen like serious discussion of where they specifically identify air launch cruise missiles, they, you know, there's no distinction that, how, that, you know, air launch cruise missiles that have been integrated on tactical aircraft make the tactical aircraft much more versatile. They allow them to, yeah, not strike maybe as deep as uh, the Tomahawk, but they can still strike pretty deep inside, at least in, I mean, I'm talking about areas that, you know, Russian regions that border uh, NATO for example or Crimea you know they can strike easily strike targets in these regions without having to enter uh, Russian Russian territory and of course because these cruise missiles are highly stealthy they can also strike the most heavily defended target but again there's no there's no distinction specific identification of, of this uh, of this challenge and now you have the JASM-ER which is being integrated on uh, various platforms and uh, which has much greater range which will allow you know non-stealthy aircraft to really reach even deeper and you have the upcoming JASM-XR which will have even greater range Uh, so there's no no really no serious reflection on that no serious appreciation of this challenge uh which is ironic but i think again goes back to the fact that stealth cruise missiles are a relatively i mean like really highly stealthy cruise missiles are a really relatively new thing and that hasn't been widely used in combat yet and also combine that with you know dismissal of stealth and that's where you get this kind of like you know, you don't get any sort of special attention to that. It's just kind of mentioned in the broader context of things. Mm. How, uh, do you,
0: how do these distances um, compare to the the Russian ground-based air defense? So when you add up what you were just talking about, will that, would that mean that uh, tactical aircraft would be able to sit outside of their ground-based air defense and strike them? Or?
1: I mean, uh, In in the West, generally, when, you know, you see a lot of articles where they kind of take the S-400 and they just draw a big circle Mm. around it and they're like, here, everything inside this area. Oh, no, you know, And the JASM, I think uh, the JASM has a range of about 370 kilometers. So they're like, "Eh, so, you know, if you look at that, it seems like it's not enough because if the S-400 can reach out to 400 kilometers, then, yeah. But I mean, the the circle, it just shows them maximum range Hmm. of the of the surface-to-air missile employed by the system in question it doesn't it it, you know says nothing about the missile's capability or the system's capability against a given target so for every given target it really varies because yeah if you're trying to shoot down an AWACS then yeah maybe this circle is Applicable, you know, an AWACS flying at medium to high altitude that maybe this certainly, uh, you can hit it maybe yeah. from about 400 kilometers. But if, you know, even a non-stealthy tactical aircraft, it can fly low. It can have standoff jamming support, which will significantly reduce the range at which you can detect and then begin to try to engage it. So uh, this is something that's often overlooked. So as we note in the article, you know, rather than having the, just drawing circles around, systems it's better to look at it as uh, per let's say you know depending on on the systems in question and also uh Look, it's more beneficial to look at how these systems actually fit in with sort of the greater integrated air defense system, because we always talk about the S-400, some, you know, see a lot of articles talking about the Panzer S-1, but there are a lot of other things that make up an integrated air defense system. You have, of course, surveillance radars, you have Russians are making heavy use of electronic warfare systems, they have a wide range of electronic warfare systems, Uh, Roger has written on that extensively. And uh, another key element in the Russian integrated air defense system that's sort of often overlooked is the what the Russians call automated, com- uh, automated control systems, which are uh, company battalion, regimental, divisional level command posts. and also in the case of the ground uh, air defense troops of the ground forces, they have air defense brigades or brigade level command posts that sort of tie all these other systems together (laughs) to make this system an integrated air defense system so these are crucial nodes uh, that would be attacked in the event of conflict and this will also greatly affect the performance of any single you know sam unit and so i think we need to be looking more at that and less at the concentric circles of course it's important to know the ranges of the missiles but uh it, as I said before it, it really varies from it really varies on based on the use of tactics based on the platforms in question uh, so it's not a really effective it's not a really useful way of looking at it and if you want to draw circles I think the more effective way to look at the Russian air de- integrated air defense system is to look at it as a kind of onion you know onions have layers so you have the outermost layer the innermost one etc but again these layers they vary based on. Uh, the target in question. On the point of Russian air defense, I think also one thing we need to also take into consideration is the Russian fighter aircraft inventory and also the Russian uh, surface to air missile inventory. It's a fraction of what it was 30 years ago, a a small fraction of what it was. And yes, Russian territory has shrank, Uh, it's still Russia was by far the largest subject of the Soviet Union. (laughs) So they have much less assets to defend. A given territory. Hmm. So, what they've done is they've concentrated their air surface to air missile systems uh, against around key sites, air, important areas. Moscow, of course, this, for example, is protected. The Moscow area is protected by two air defense divisions. It's one of the most heavily defended capitals in the world. Uh, and you have uh, Kaliningrad, and now you have Crimea, which is kind of being turned into a fortress as well. So, areas where they value the most or where they see as uh, poss- possibility of, of these areas being attacked, they concentrate their surface-to-air missile defenses there. And then you have also the fighter aircraft force, which, uh, you know, can be assigned to uh, support uh, different... I mean, they also deploy fighter aircraft in those areas to work alongside the ground-based air defenses and create these areas where. Uh, you have a large concentration of air defenses. And, uh, this is, uh, I mean, also when you look at Russian air defense, you know, you have the aerospace forces, which have under them you have the air missile defense troops, and you have the Russian Air Force, so the fighter aircraft and the surface-to-air missile systems, and uh, everything else. What they call radio technical troops, which is the surveillance radar, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then you have the air defense troops of the ground forces, which is uh, which their job is to provide. You know, when once ground forces advance, their job is to provide cover for the ground forces. Whereas the objective of the uh, aerospace forces is to defend key uh, key infrastructure, uh, political, military and administrative uh, infrastructure, mm-hmm. typically inside Russian territory, or in the case of Syria, expeditionary forces, you know, the air, Chimamem air base in Syria and, uh, and other objects. The air defense troops of the ground forces in the event of a ground invasion, they'll be also, they have the long range, medium range and short range systems, which are going to uh, which are going to pose a challenge. These systems, unlike the aerospace forces ones, these systems, most of them are tracked. So they have better mobility so that they can adjust over you know, unprepared terrain. When you're dealing with the Russian uh, air defense threat, you sort of have these two separate entities that uh, they're also working on improving their interoperability with each other as well. Yeah, it well, has to be taken into account. Yeah,
0: That, that would have been my, my next question. Is that, Are they able yes. to... To operate together, and what are, are they? Com- or would you think they were competent enough to to not accidentally target each other? Uh,
1: actually, uh, based on some Russian articles, they do identify, uh, you know, a lot of uh, friendly fire incidents in simulated exercises. So there you do see a lot of talk, especially. From articles a few years back when the Russian uh, Air Force was undergoing another major organization, which created, resulted in the uh, creation of the aerospace forces. So you, you do see a lot of articles talking about, you know, more effective uh, organizational structure, more effective command and control. And also in terms of the technology, the, the more modern automated uh, control systems, they have a much higher degree of uh, interoperability so uh, yeah i think they're definitely improving in uh, all these areas you know to make joint operations more effective
0: yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna take you a little bit off topic i mentioned this in the yeah. uh, in the email but um s-400 f-35 and turkey do okay. you have any yeah. do you have any views on on this whole
1: situation i think turkey's move to purchase the s-400 it's a very political move Because from an economic perspective, it makes little sense. You know, uh, Turkish suppliers provide something like almost 1,000 parts, uh, different parts. They, uh, I think, about 400 of them are single-source parts. So, and I think Lockheed Martin estimates that they will lose something like 12 billion dollars in revenue, uh, which is uh, not a small amount. (laughs) And of course. It denies Turkey, one of the most advanced fighter aircraft in the world, which, uh, by the way, uh, I think, you know, if you look, it's not all these all these Euro- NATO European countries purchasing the F-35, you know, it's going to give an unprecedented degree of interoperability hmm. with the United States uh, and, you know, with other NATO allies. In a way, you know, in a joint NATO fight, it's also, of course, making Turkey less effective. And uh, so that's why I think it's very much a political thing, something that has been booing for a long time since uh, because Erdogan has been at odds with with Europe and with the US for uh, quite some time. And I think the fact that Russia entered the region and also Iran using the instability in Iraq and Syria to really spread its uh, gain more power, uh, you know, this is shaping Turkish Political considerations and also Russian buildup in Crimea and the Black Sea. And so they want to, to build some kind of relationship with uh, Russia as well. And they see the purchase of the S 400. And I mean, there are discussions of the, some joint production. Not exactly clear what this joint production will entail. Russia will still, uh, you know, all this sensitive stuff will still be made. Hmm. In Russia. I think they're trying to sort of diversify that they see themselves as rising as a sort of major regional power thanks to their uh, economy and their population so they want to you know be able they want to be i guess more independent and so so they're looking for diversifying their options and one way to do it is of course to purchase russian systems and i mean that that of course very justifiably you know has led many in NATO to question turkey's commitment to the alliance and uh, and in general i mean from a military perspective yeah here they would be getting the f35 whereas from russia they're also getting an export version of the s400 they're not getting the russian military version of the s400 and they are, you know, they're not going to be able to integrate that with NATO capabilities. So it's really a purely politically motivated move. I don't think, you know, I I think U.S. relations with Turkey still remain relatively stable. You have the insularic airbase in Turkey, and there's no discussion so far of pulling U.S. troops. out of Turkey. So in that sense, it's fine. It's still in the alliance and that's important to try and, uh, you know, not distance it too much, not push it even further into into Russian arms. Uh, and uh, also, I mean, historically, you know, there's a there's a, there's a limit to Turkish engagement with Russia. So it's, I guess, impressive that they managed to go from uh, a very low point in 2015 when Turkey shot down a Russian Su-24 to, uh, you know, here we are buying the S-400 but there is a limit to their engagement and uh, that i think that will also keep turkey dependent on nato as well yeah. and uh, there are many in turkey who want to continue uh, don't don't like the idea of buying the s-400 that they think it's a mistake they think it's politically motivated and they want to uh, have a very strong partnership with the rest of NATO yeah, yeah. so this is uh, also something to take into consideration that it's uh, it's not everyone's point of view in Turkey it, it, uh, there are many 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 who are uh, opposed to this idea
0: thank you for listening the Wavel room is free to use but it's not free to produce so head down to wa and maybe donate us some money so that we can keep going and keep creating that content that we know you love